Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and joining me is my co-host, Bob Rudis. Bob, what is on your mind this week? Did, did you throw salt behind your back for that one, Jay? No, why? It, it is episode 13, after all. Is that what I said? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm just saying, like, that's a very unlucky... This is, this is our unluckiest podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, unlucky 13. All right. So, is that what's on your mind, that we're unlucky 13 this week? Yeah, I mean, I would normally tease people with uh, some cool links that we're going to share later, but we just have a completely full podcast because we have an epic topic to cover. Yes, and we have two uh, incredible guests this week. So let's let's just go ahead and bring them on. So we've got two people joining us. We've got Lane Harrison and Sophie Angle. And so, Lane, why don't we start with you? Why don't you introduce yourself and give a quick background? Yeah, sure. So I'm Lane Harrison, a postdoc at Tufts University. Uh, I work in a lab here at Tufts uh, that focuses on data visualization. We call ourselves Vault, uh, the Visual Analytics Lab at Tufts. Um, a few things we touch on: we touch on perception, cognition, and data visualization. Things like individual differences. You know, what one visualization is good for one might not be for another. Uh, and then the intersection of things like machine learning and computation and how that applies to uh, data visualization. So lots of fun research going on here. Fantastic. And Sophie, you want to take some time, introduce yourself, and give your background? Sure. Um, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco. My background is more traditionally in computer security. Um, I got my degree at UC Davis. But lately, I've been teaching a lot of visualization courses here at USF for both the computer science and analytics programs. And we have somehow, um, through just randomness and luck, a great group of people here who do visualization. So there's also a Lark Joshi in the computer science department, and Scott Murray is also in the design department here. And so wow. we do like um, a bunch of collaborative things, like a speaker series and um, those sorts of stuff here. That's great. So the reason that you two are both here is that you two are both involved with VizSec, right? And I'm, I, you guys can clarify me here, but I'm going to try and describe what VizSec is, even though you guys should because you ran it. But VizSec is essentially a gathering of uh, uh, security people and, and a lot of people from academia and, and corporations and things like that coming together to talk about visualization within the cybersecurity realm. And the interesting part is that that's piggybacked on the, the larger IEEE Viz uh, conference, right? Um, did, I, did I capture that? I think you captured most of it. Uh, VizSec has been around since 2004, and the original goal was to bring together people from data mining uh, and security and visualization to address emerging challenges in security. Uh, it's really interesting that they're kind of describing data science, um, especially data-driven security, all the way back in 2004. I was just reading this before we got started. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, VizSec has partnered with IEEE Viz for a few years. I think we've also been with uh, RAID, Recent Advances Intrusion Detection, uh, and SOOPS, the Symposium for Usable uh, Security and Privacy. 
and Sophie, can you think of any others? Um, well, Raiden soups are the ones that first come to mind. I think we've also been co-located somewhere else. Yeah, I think maybe ACM CCS or something like that. One of the ACM conferences on security. So typically, you know, academic in nature, most of the places we partner with are going to have a papers track. Um, so obviously, Visec attracts a lot of security people because you know one of the main things we offer is a, a papers track um, for people to you know publish their security visualization research and come to you know one of these conferences and present it. Great. So this year you guys met in Paris, right? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, right. You got a trip to Paris out of the whole thing. <laughs> so, so that's not that common that we <laughs> we're hosted in Paris. And there were actually a whole sort of uh, logistical issues that go with that, but it was uh, it was great to be in Paris uh, and to actually get a, to in touch with some of the security research and uh, visualization research going on in Europe. Um, that was really unique to this year and uh, really made it an awesome visit. Yeah, how, how did having it in Paris actually impact the attendance? What was it on par with previous years? What was it was it better? That's a good question. I, I think it's one of our best years. Um, I think our high count was um, 150 people. Wow. Yep. Wow. Great. <laughs> so, yeah, so Viz brings a lot of people, but we actually had a great uh, publicity chair this year who was local to the conference, uh, Nico, we call him. Um, so Nico did a great job, you know, reaching out to the security community and the visualization community in Europe. And uh, we actually had our lowest uh, acceptance rate for papers. We had over 40 submissions this year. And uh, we accepted, I guess, 12 of those. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, our uh, acceptance rate is kind of on par with the symposium status. Uh, so Visec has really been growing in recent years. We want to continue that. That's why we're glad that you have us. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It's a really great turnout. And the, the, I was going to ask about how many papers were submitted, and that's a great rate ratio. It's over, you know, one in three, basically. Yeah. That's great. Three times the amount. <laughs> um, so one of the things I was wondering about, and this is not really directly related to VizSec, but you mentioned the, the history uh, coming from data mining, data science, things like that. What is the overall relationship when you talk about visualization with the, the larger world of analytics and, and data science, data mining, statistics, all of that good stuff? What is, how does that relationship play out? Well, we could answer that in at least two ways, um, how we think it should play out and uh, how it plays out in the papers that we've seen published. Um, so if you're talking about getting something published in a venue like VizSec, uh, it has to be up to date. So uh, people who are publishing on the intersection of you know, machine learning, data mining, and data visualization uh, typically take you know, some of the modern you know, data mining algorithms, apply it to a data set, and uh, use visualization to kind of, you know, tune the results um, uh, to, to help, you know, explain what's going uh, on in an anomaly detection algorithm, uh, which is, you know, a pretty difficult task. So there are so many approaches to anomaly detection out there. They're very mathematical in nature, and you don't always know why something is considered an anomaly. But if you can add visualization into a mix to tell you why something is an anomaly, that's a big win for the, the security analyst for the domain user. Uh, so typically that's uh, at least one of the approaches. Um, 
security data is also very heterogeneous. Uh, so we have you know, all kinds of different sources that come into play. Um, I'm sure you guys can name a few. Uh, I've seen papers that deal with NetFlow data, with you know just raw PCAP data. What does that look like? Um, and you've seen you know sort of some of the playful things that you know that might look like the matrix. Uh, sometimes those can get published, and they get published because uh, people will actually run an evaluation and come up with this you know set of tasks that looking at your data in real time is actually good for. Um, so you, you've seen the things that look like the matrix. You've seen the things that look like you know heat maps. Uh, all sorts of novel uh, data visualizations come into play. Um, Great. So, you know, one of the one of the things I was going with there, um, and this again, I want to get back to this second a second, but there there could be, and maybe this isn't necessarily for. Uh, VizSec because it is seems to be very rooted in academia, but when you when you start talking about data visualization as a a separate focus area, you can get people who enter the field with uh, almost no analytic background. They're coming from more of a design perspective, and yet they're working with data and they're trying to uncover the meaning and relate some type of a story or something in that data, and yet they don't ha they aren't coming from that background. You know, it's that separation of um, analytics and visualization. Can you do effective visualization without analytics? Maybe that's the way to take that question. I mean, I feel like analytics and data visualization, they're both interdisciplinary fields. Um, at least, you know, here our analytics program is a mix of, you know, statistics and math and computer science and machine learning and data mining. And I think it's the same for visualization. I mean, I think you get a lot of power when you're applying visualization to specific problems, and those problems are almost always going to come from different domains. That's a good answer. So let's get let's get into VizSec here. So you guys had it, it was it was one day long, and you had one keynote, four poster presentations, and twelve speakers within one day. How tired were you at the end of the day? Was that <laughs> like tired. it's over? You you go back to hotel and you're asleep, or was there did you have any energy left over? I think that's mainly Sophie. Sophie was the program chair this year, and she did a great job at you know, introducing speakers and coordinating the day. Um, I just asked a few questions, so she was probably <laughs> the tired one that day. I mean, it was, it was a lot of work. We had a really fantastic team this year of people helping organize the conference. Um, but it was also extremely energizing. I, mean, th I think it was such a great year for VizSec. There were so many fantastic papers. It was so hard to make the cut to 12 papers. There were mm. many more that we could have accepted if we had room in the program. Um, and so at the end of the day, it was, it was really um, really energizing to see where the community is going. That's, that's why you want the day to go right. I mean, that you know, at the end of the day, you want to feel energized, not drained, right? Right, absolutely. Let's get into some of these talks. Um, and let's start with the, the keynote. The keynote was uh, Dan Hubbard, right? And uh, how how was his keynote? I mean, he's he, he's there to set the tone, right? Kick the day off. How was that keynote? So I thought Dan did a fantastic job. Um, really exceeded my already high expectations. Um, so I mean, he came in. He was talking about you know he he gave this really honest and candid overview of security and the state of the art, uh, and I love that. Um, so his talk is you know, online, so I encourage any listeners to, to go watch it. 
but after this candid overview, he starts talking about some of the challenges that OpenDNS faces uh, in managing, you know, these large-scale attacks. Um, you know, how, how can they take down a botnet and that sort of thing? And this never crops up in a, a visuals or a VisSec paper, right? I mean, this is a, a real problem in the trenches. I mean, those things do crop up, but they're on usually a much smaller scale. So to see this at first was exciting. But then what was really, really interesting is to see how he used visualization, how OpenDNS uses visualization um, towards, you know, uh, addressing these problems. Uh, so he started to introduce the Open Graffiti framework, uh, which is like a 3D graph visualization library. To, to be perfectly honest, whenever I saw 3D graph visualization at first, I was a little put off uh, because in the visualization community, we always talk about how you should never use 3D because 3D, you know, introduces occlusion and all sorts of other problems. It's tough to manipulate, you know, for interaction and that sort of thing. So I was a little bit scared. Uh, but then right away, he's just showing how, I mean, these, these videos that he showed were amazing about how you would change the, uh, the layout algorithm to, to figure out what was going on in the botnet. Uh, so switching between those, so there was these constrained set of layout algorithms. Each one of them told them something new about what was going on. Uh, you know, they overlaid different uh, types of traffic, um, you know, that was propagating through the network, uh, clusters in the graph. I mean, honestly, you have to watch the video to get the full sense of it. Uh, but that was really incredible to see somebody using visualization and a visualization that might not uh, crop up in a VizSec paper um, to do, you know, awesome, awesome work. And that's what our community really needed to hear this year is that, you know, we need to start using the tools that we already have um, to address real problems, to get out there with analysts uh, and, and see what good we can do. Um, I think VizSec as a community can start moving towards uh, putting their stuff out there for other people to use. It actually ends up being a, a good idea to put your things on the web, as I find, you know, uh, that's actually how I found you guys in the first place, right? That was through Twitter, so. Uh, but yeah, uh, the keynote was awesome. Everybody should listen to it. I think I'm going to go listen to it now. I've convinced myself. <laughs> and like, you know, two things there. One, we are actively working on a way to fly the Millennium Falcon through one of the open graffiti, um, open jail environments, just to have kind of some fun with it. Um, but the the second one is, uh, and it's sort of, and, and I think this may apply to other papers uh, along with the the keynote. But you know, with the nature of Viz moving from static to dynamic, and you know, even 3D in, in this particular case. You know, paper doesn't cut it. PDFs really don't cut it either, right? Like the, it's a really an old medium. It's an old way of actually distributing things. Um, even video, to a certain degree, only does it partial justice. Um, was there any discussion, either as a result of the keynote or or just around VizSec, about the need to move into more like interactive documents? Like I I, I think you know just for, from the stuff that we do in R, there's a lot of move to do things interactively in R, you know, and produce actual like HTML documents that have interactivity associated with it versus just flat Viz. And was there any discussion about, you know, how is the community moving towards that from a, to a from a information information distribution mechanism? So instead of you know making a paper, making an online interactive document, people can go through to kind of see some of this stuff. You know, I've seen uh, an uptick in the the number of videos submitted with papers, even at VisSec this year. Out of the uh, the 43 that we had, and you know, the 12 papers that were submitted, a lot of them included videos, um, which is a good move. As far as moving from PDF to HTML um, and, and, you know, ditching the PDF, 
that's going to be a while uh, because academia is so rooted in their PDFs right now. Wow. Um, it would take a, a large push from one of the big academic communities, maybe even the biz community, for that to trickle down into you know something like VizSec. Um, I don't see it trickling up. So if we were to make that change, I, I don't see that, that having a, a huge impact. Um, but it, there's another component to this, which is putting your uh, tool online available for use. So uh, all of these tools that are you know presented in the, the papers, they're, they're interactive. You're getting a static shot whenever you look at the PDF. You get maybe a demo whenever you look at the video. But what you really want is something that people can use um, immediately. Uh, and so the authors that you know go through the overhead, which doesn't help them get their paper, you know, accepted. Honestly, um, to to actually put their stuff on the web, uh, we should be lifting those people up, um, especially. I mean, we we actually talked about creating a list of tools that have been uh, published in Visec that are available for use right now, and we want to continue doing that and to encourage authors to do that because it really helps with dissemination. Um, I don't think that uh, the, the Nessus visualizer that you know I had made would have ever have made it into your hands um, if it had only lived in a PDF, if I hadn't you know, taken the extra time uh, with John Goodall at Oak Ridge National Labs to put that on the web. Absolutely. For him for letting me do that. Yeah, well, and, and also by, by you putting that out there, I mean, I think you actually talked to um, the, the folks at Nessus about that and data formats. Like, it basically caused a lot of, at least from the, the periphery I saw, engagement and, and interaction with other folks to perhaps even make it better and expand it as well. So. Yeah, exactly. I even got pull requests, which was amazing. So we haven't actually updated that tool to work with the latest version of the Nessus thing. Um, and that's because that's not going to, you know, help me publish a new paper right now. Uh, but if somebody wants to make a pull request on that project to update it to the latest Nessus file um, and visualize their files that way, that's, that's definitely welcome. But with um, so many web-based tools now, we are seeing that more often where people are putting up, you know, their GitHub repositories, making things open source, and, you know, you actually can play around with the tools and interact with them, which has been a fantastic trend, I think, in the general viz community, at least, I've seen. Yeah, definitely like the web-based tools, but, I mean, whenever you talk about security, sometimes scale is an issue, and you've got to go all the way back to, you know, using uh, OpenGL sometimes, you know, just to get all of the data on the screen. And that's a little bit of work to, you know, put out there on the web for people to install. I mean, I guess GitHub could be a good medium for this, too. But we're still figuring out, like, exactly what the right balance is um, between putting your code out there, you know, in a form that other people can use. That's definitely an amount of overhead there, and getting the balance right is really important. Yeah, I, I could see definitely where the scale problem would absolutely be there. Like, it, when we talked to Visitrend a couple of shows ago, they were sort of mentioning that too, where they do a lot of backend processing to make the the smaller viz, you know, like the actual viz consumable on on the front end, and the infrastructure needed to do some of that is 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 that is a little bit hard for a lot of just individual practitioners to go out and spin up just to be able to do that. So I could see where if there was something that would someone could go play with versus have to go build from scratch to try to you know actually make work well with a lot of data, that would actually be a nice sandbox thing to be able to do. Out of the 12, do you guys have any favorites that stuck out for you? Well, my name was on one of the papers, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one's second. Uh, so one of the talks that stuck out for me uh, was uh, Dan Best um, gave this talk, Seven Key Challenges for Visualization in Cyber Network Defense. Uh, I love this type of paper um, where it just goes through and kind of gives the lay of the land um, of challenges uh, that are being faced. 
And Dan Best, to give you some background, uh, a few years ago, he had a really great paper um, on this super scalable um, tool that incorporated anomaly detection. It was called Cleek. Um, so we'll, we'll add links to these, I guess, in the notes or, or, or somewhere. Um, and, you know, he's got so much experience working with analysts uh, and the challenges that they face. To have him come through and, and write a paper about seven key challenges uh, is really important for the community to, to kind of, you know, scope the papers, you know, moving forward, scope the projects moving forward, um, you know, how to talk to analysts, what emerging challenges are out there. Uh, so that's one of the papers I really like, and Dan did a great job of presenting it. Um, so that's my pick. Okay. Yeah, actually, that I, that that was one of um, my favorite ones as well. Only in that it, uh, while while I can read academic papers, the ones that actually are are more meaningful to practitioners, like that you could actually take and bring back to your actual organization and do something with that paper versus just go, oh, that was a nice paper. Um, I thought there was a lot of really great stuff in there that someone could take back and begin to show other folks in their orgs if they're having problems, you know, getting that understanding there and actually bring that through because it was really well well written and and I thought very accessible to to most folks. And and it might be good just if we could run through the seven. I have them up in front of me, um, and we can literally just rattle them off because I think it's just a really concise list. Yeah. So the first is lots of data. Obviously, there's a lot of data out there. A lot of data sources and that the data sources are not linked, then you've got a challenge of data quality, and cadence of the network, which I think is interesting, sort of the, the patterns on the network, right? Then the progression of threat escalation, and then balancing the risk and reward, basically balancing uh, the value of information with the cost of more information. And th Those are the seven that he lists out, and goes through and describes them, and then discusses them, and it's just, like you guys have said, just a really, you know, it's somewhat simple, but it's it's brilliant. I mean, it just lays everything out in front of you like that. Absolutely. I think it was a fantastic trend this year. It seemed like a lot of people in the community are thinking about process and problems and evaluation. You know, every session had a general paper that was either looking at one of those three things. Um, and, and since I wasn't on the paper, I can say that one of my favorite papers was the one that uh, Lane helped with. I think it was a fantastic overview of where the VizTech community has been looking at what kind of evaluations they've been doing and where we should maybe think about moving forward with the community. Um, and I thought it was really, really fantastic work. Yeah, so that paper um, is Visualization Evaluation for Cybersecurity Trends and Future Directions. First author on that is Diane Staheli from uh, MIT Lincoln Labs. Um, so Lincoln Labs is right down the road for me, so I've been in contact with Diane. Um, and we, we, you know, sat down and, and started working on this paper. I mean, Diane came up with the idea to look at evaluation and just did a fantastic job. We did a, a huge literature search to go back through all the years of FISSEC and to see what sorts of evaluations people were using. Um, and this is a really fair critique because uh, a lot of times you'll see a systems paper, you know, presented but you're not really sure, you know, how well it was evaluated or, you know, on what dimensions was it evaluated. Was it evaluated with actual security analysts or were the case studies, you know, that were presented and the data used just strong enough to, you know, uh, make it seem useful. And to, to really lay this out, the ways that things are being evaluated, um, the cognitive task analyses, all these sorts of techniques that people might use um, to evaluate their tools is, uh, you know, a good move for, you know, the community to, to figure out uh, how we can evaluate things moving forward. Um, so it's kind of just like a checklist. You know, these are the things that I did. 
um, you know, here are some of the things that we should avoid. Uh, here are things that we need more of. You know, we need more instrumentation. We need people, you know, looking at analysts in situ. Like, how are people actually using the tools, uh, and what can we learn from that? And you know, how how do tools, you know, connect to each other? That sort of thing. I mean, there's so many open problems that, that come whenever you start to talk about evaluation. I I, I gotta tell you, dude, stacked area charts, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's, with, that's, with, with, with like how many categories? I mean, like the bottom one's cool, but like how many categories? Par for the course for you know one of these meta evaluation papers. Yeah, actually, I was gonna go there too, right? So you guys, this wasn't just like a, a paper that was helping craft what may be the key elements for doing viz evaluation, which did this. That's what I really took away from it. But you went all meta and actually went back and you dug through like I don't know like what 50 papers or something like that from the from the previous 10 years and you really did you tried to find evidence of people doing that same kind of evaluation um, and did that uh, you know one thing I, I didn't really delve I didn't I don't remember specifically from reading this a couple weeks ago but did did going through those previous papers and looking for what they did for evaluation for the vis effectiveness um, help you in cr crafting those new components that you guys came up with or did you kind of come up with those on your own and apply them as you went through the papers yeah, so I, one of the things that we did in, in creating this paper, we did look through all the previous years of VisSec, and uh, we kind of picked out, like, you know, these uh, you know these key papers that did such a good job on evaluation. So we wanted to highlight them, and we do that in the text. Uh, we'll point out stuff from uh, Virginia Tech, Glenn Fink, and he, he did such a good job evaluating his stuff. Um, and what I've encourage future authors to do is to find someone that does it well and, and to learn from that and to adapt that. Um, as far as the things that we put on at the end, um, this is borrowed a, a lot from the, the actual biz community and trends that we see in evaluation there. Uh, so you, you talk about analyst instrumentation and learning from analyst interactions. Uh, some of that comes from uh, work that my uh, advisor here at Tufts, Remco Chang, did looking at, you know, uh, you know, there's always meaning in interaction. Every interaction that an analyst makes with a tool has some sort of meaning. It tells you something either about the data or about the analyst. Uh, and we can apply those, you know, those thoughts uh, to, to looking at visualization and cybersecurity. And there, there are other things that people could do that might be a little bit more out there. Um, I think we talk about brain sensing. Um, as a way to assess the, the cognitive state, the mental state of the analyst. So if you have things that are happening in real time and things that are stressful, um, how does that impact what sort of information you should have on the screen? You know, should it change? Should it be less? Should it be you know, more? Probably not. Uh, but when will it even out? Um, those sorts of answer, uh, questions are really, you know, interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't expect you guys to be wearing, uh, you know, uh, brain sensing stuff anytime soon, though. Oh, I would. I'd sign up for that. I, and, and, and I would so sign Jay up for that, too. So that's going to be... <laughs> gotcha. Um, you know, and and since, since we went to that paper second, um, I think one of the things that I found, like, maybe all kinds of awesome about the papers, and if folks, you know, you, I think it's IEEE, that's what the link is for the papers. Um, it's IEEE, right, if I'm not mistaken, right? Actually, we published with ACM. Oh, ACM, so they published with, with, with ACM. Um, I, I really do encourage folks, as you hear through these, and there's something you want to get to go there and grab them, because when I'm reading academic papers, what I hate is all these like black and white stuff with cross hatches instead of colors and stuff. And these are just gorgeous, especially starting with this one, just beautiful colors 
um, just striking visualizations as you go through each one of the papers and through there. And um, I don't remember, I mean, I didn't get all the papers from previous VISTEX, but I don't remember there being lots of color in previous ones. Was that, was that something really new this year? Uh, I would say so. Uh, I mean, not entirely new this year. I know I had color in the paper that I published in maybe 2010. And, but a, a long time ago, I remember writing papers and thinking about, okay, how does this look in black and white, uh, even like two or three years ago. And now I worry less about that. I mean, I think it's still important, uh, you know, black and white <laughs> printing is cheaper, um, but, you know, in visualization especially, we have to use color, right? Um, yeah. I mean, that's just how it is, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon. I expect there to be more of it, uh, and we're getting really good at making these high-quality PDFs that are, you know, super zoomable, so we can have, you know, Tufty-esque, really detailed, you know, data visualizations in our papers. Uh, and some of the authors put a lot of work into, uh, obviously, the illustrations in their papers this year. So it's definitely worth checking out. So the, some of the things you come up with with techniques for just evaluation of how the viz works. And when I hear viz, I also think of UI at the same time because it's how you work and manipulate things. And um, I don't think either one of you probably have to work with security tools a whole lot. I, I used to have to do it a lot more than I do now. And, and the vendors that are horrible. Like, they just suck and everything. So I just wonder if any vendors ha are reaching out to you, are you or is academia reaching out to any of the vendors to try to help, you know, help them understand that the things that you've outlined here matter, like really holistically, just from a user user interface ex, you know, experience. Let alone doing with this particular viz and interacting with a particular viz. So, is there is there any any plans, or has anyone actually tried to to say, hey, how can we apply this to make our stuff better, so that cyber can be better, so that we can be more effective, so that the analysts can do their jobs better, et cetera. You know, I, I haven't heard anybody reaching out to us yet. Um, I'll tell you how we usually, uh, you know, how, how an academic would go about this. Um, I would take some of those vendor tools and uh, use them as my baseline if I were to create something, you know, that were to address some of the, the shortcomings of these tools. And I would talk all about that in the introduction of a paper and say how, you know, vendor A, you know, has a tool that supposedly does this, but we know from, uh, you know, Bob and Jay, uh, that it doesn't, and uh, therefore we have motivated, you know, the, the the need for this new tool, and we'll present the tool, and we'll evaluate it, and everything will be awesome. Actually, I can tell you what you would really do is you would get through three of the vendor tools, and then you would say, heck with this, where's my bottle of scotch? That's what you have to do with that. Right. <laughs> That's a good approach, too. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jack. In academia. But that, that's a related point because, I mean, some of these papers, as you guys have mentioned, are just absolutely gorgeous visualizations. I mean, a lot of work has gone into how to present this information visually. And then turning around and me looking at what we currently have in the industry is absolutely nothing like this, right? So have yeah. you guys, in, in your time with VizSec, have you heard of any success stories of, of somebody having a paper out there and, and being contacted about developing a product around it or integrating it into an existing product or anything like that. Have you heard any success stories like that? Yes, and I don't have the link open. Um, so there was uh, Robert Erbacher, I believe, and some of uh, you know his students. Um, this was actually a, a really gorgeous visualization. I'll, I'll be sure to look it up and add a link. Uh, but it's a circular visualization, and all of your, you know, nodes for your network are in the middle, and you have intrusion detection alerts along the radius, uh, and different types of, you know, firewall alerts also along the, you know, this outer circle, and then the link, you know, you mouse over one, it'll link to the node within the inner circle, 
Um, so this this tool, I don't remember what it was called, uh, but I remember reading about it. Uh, it came out in the er you know mid to early 2000s, um, and uh, I remember reading this paper and then seeing another paper come out about like you know success story. Uh, you know this is being turned into a product. I don't know where that product is now. So uh, so w would that be Vizalert? It might be Vizalert. Sounds right. Yeah, it it and for folks for for folks who have not yet put data driven security on your um uh, Christmas list or or whatever holiday list you have, it's page two seventy two in data driven security. Just just kind of throwing that out there. All right. yeah. uh, on sale Amazon, I have to do that. I have to do. I I I'm the shill of the show, so I have to do the shill for the book at least. Uh, once show. So well done, Bob. Hey, you know I love the book. I read it, so. I can I can get into it too. So uh, yeah, and you talk about these gorgeous visualizations, and uh, this this presents a conflict for me as a researcher. You know, how many analysts want to use these gorgeous multi-view tools with you know all the color and that sort of thing, um, like VisAlert? Or I mean, do you find like you do in the data-driven security book that most of your time um, you're, you're presenting you know a simpler visualization? Uh, that's something that, as a researcher, I really want to know. Yeah, there yeah. definitely is a uh, conflict when you try to present something um, new and and dramatic. Like a lot of these are very, very dramatic. There's a lot of stuff going on. The the uh, what's the word? Inertia, I think, is the word. The amount of inertia in any given situation is absolutely unbelievable. So there has to be. Like you can't go from, like I'm looking at the Oceans paper, something we'll probably talk about. You can't go from what they currently are seeing on the panes of glass to that. Like yeah. the, the amount of confusion and pushback and chaos that would ensue would, would be unbelievable. Right? Dude, but bullet graphs are still challenging to show to people. Trust me, I've, I've done it. It's really so There hard. is that. And yeah. that's also, but I mean, that's also gets to, um, you know, educating the users, educating the population about what's out there, what's possible. Um, and not only that, but I'm sure, and maybe you guys have realized this teaching this subject, but that there's, people have to have some level of education in order to understand some of the more complex things. I mean, part of visualization is that you can reach anybody Right, that you simplify these complex things down into something visual, which is anybody can see, right? But there's, there's that's something in between there. Yeah. So I mean, a, a tool that comes out that like Oceans, which will show, um, you know, it's a very complex tool, multiple views, and you can't expect somebody to pick that up immediately. Um, I wouldn't pick that up immediately, and I've worked in visualizations for years. You have to think about how things work, and there's definitely a learning curve. Just like there's a learning curve to creating visualizations, there's a learning curve to you know effectively using and analyzing your data with visualizations. We're just so used to the simple ones that you know it's 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 tough to to make a huge jump. Um, but what we need to find, and what we find through evaluation and through this exploration in the academic community, is that some of these more complex tools can serve a purpose, uh, and it's important to figure out what they're good at and exactly, you know, where they break down. So uh, something for an academic paper is usually built around a set of constraints. Uh, we're all about defining our constraints, you know, the constraints of the size of the data, and the you know, velocity of the data, and you know, the number of dimensions in the data, uh, whenever we create these tools, and to figure out how those, you know, that meshes with actual practice is super difficult. 
but important to do. So this is why we need to, you know, engage better with the security practitioner community to figure out, you know, how how you know how many data points should my visualization support, uh, and is there something that I can cite, you know, that tells me that. So, uh, kind of. Uh, Figuring out these sorts of things are you know, important for uh, security visualization research. Part of that is also, I think, um, why I really loved the problem characterization paper uh, by uh, Marcus Wagner and um, several other people, because they, they conducted so many interviews with people who would be using a visualization tool. And I feel like it was just a fantastic paper to start at the beginning and understand the users and understand their problems and characterize that problem before moving forward with the tool. And it's not something that I think we see that often published is that first part and then, you know, I'm sure there'll be a follow-up from this group of people about the tool that they do eventually build based on all the interviews they conducted. Yeah, that's something I definitely encourage. I mean, I, I would love to see more of this sort of, uh, you know, analysis, especially in the security visualization community, right? Visualization is supposed to be a tool that helps you deal with scale, helps you deal with heterogeneous data. Uh, but if we don't know exactly what we're up against, um, it, it's tough to figure out. And a, a few of the, you know, people in the community are really creating great, like, test beds for testing, you know, uh, data visualization. One thing that we see often is, uh, the VAST challenge. Um, so the VAST challenge uh, is something that comes out every year for the past five or six years or so. And uh, one of the people um, that, you know, one of the organizations that helps with it is uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab. And they put a lot of work into, you know, creating synthetic security data sets. Um, so it's uh, a data set that uh, I'm most familiar with, you know, had a Nessus security scan, it had some PCAP data, uh, and uh, there's one more firewall log um, that spans several days, and they'll you know put uh, attacks in this data, and they'll hide the ground truth from the people and put it out to the community and say solve it, um, and you know see if visualization helps. And uh, it turns out that it does. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I remember being a grad student working with several gigabytes of data. Um, by myself, right? And that was an awesome experience for me as a student um, to, you know, get a taste of what you guys probably do on a daily basis uh, and to build a visualization tool around that. Um, and, you know, more of this from the community would be great. Um, more data sets uh, that are reflective of the type of things that you guys go through um, on a daily basis. And those will make it, uh, you know, those will help us design uh, better security visualizations that will then be presented at VizSec and that we'll then talk about on things like, you know, this podcast. One that I found, like, really surprising that I went in not necessarily knowing I was going to like was the IMAP paper, um, which was visualizing network activity over internet maps. And as soon as I think about putting IP addresses on a map, I get irritated. <laughs> oh, but, man, Jay, but I, I am so going to put my different. music on that one right there. Yeah. Um, and I think that they actually, you know, took this problem and came up with a very interesting solution on how to actually show um, this kind of activity in a very interesting spatial way. And I was, you know, completely converted by the end of the paper that this was a very interesting and useful technique. Yeah, I want that shapefile. Like, I so want that shapefile to start doing <laughs> stuff with. Yeah, so just to give a quick overview of that paper, 
you know, when people try to, to visualize the Internet, there's a few different things out there. One is obviously a geographic map, and as you alluded to, Sophie, that's generally worthless, right? It's, there's so many flaws with doing that that it's, it's crazy. There, there are times it's helpful, but most times people don't understand that. But So but the next thing, what, there's a couple of different... I'm thinking of the Hilbert curve for representing the IP space. Bob, I don't know, what are the other ones for representing all of it? I mean, there's I think there's a few others. But, but what they did essentially is that they, they took the ASN, the, the routing of the AS, num, AS networks and um, made a graph and, and simplified it down from there and essentially got it to um, clusters of ASs, I guess at a geographic level is where they ended up doing that and coloring it by, I think it was continent. But it just made a really simplified view of the network, of the internet, actually the entire internet, that, that was not uh, intolerable to read. You know, and it simplified it down. So it was a, I think it was a very effective way of doing that. Yeah, so I really love this approach. Um, and the reason I love it might be a little weird. Uh, so, I, you know, as a, a biz researcher, we touch on uh, psychology and cognition a lot. And uh, one of the things I've seen over and over again is that, you know, visualizations and any visual metaphor that leverages our innate spatial ability, uh, you know, tends to be very effective. Uh, so whenever things show up in, you know, a quadrant or, you know, some area of a map consistently, um, that's a win. That should be like a design goal for people uh, is to not have, you know, a, a force-directed layout that puts a node in the top left one time and the bottom right the other time and so on and so forth. Because people can't get used to that. You can't rely on it. Uh, so to have something like IMAP that puts everything, you know, one, in a, a readable context and two, in like a spatially consistent context, um, that's a huge win whenever you start to, to look at activity on this. So, you know, if, if things start flashing, uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about pre-attentive processing and data visualization and how important that is. You know, things that flash grab our attention immediately or things that, you know, change color a certain way that, you know, it's really great to make use of that. And if you make use of it, you know, in a spatially consistent way, uh, that's going to allow the analyst to, one, notice the activity, and two, to put it in context almost immediately, uh, which is super, super interesting. Um, then I, I can't really point to any papers, uh, you know, even in the broader viz community that talk about this sort of thing and what advantages it might entail. Um, so that's, you know, at least one reason why that paper was super interesting to me. And you asked yeah. a question at the end of the talk, and could you go over that question? Yeah, except I don't remember what it was. <laughs> well, you, you were talking about applying it to uh, an individual corporation. Yeah, yeah. So or uh, a network or something. Right, and and this stems from the vast challenge. You know, in the in the vast challenge, we see these IP spaces of this you know made up network, and you know, I was always thinking while I did that, I wish I could lay this out in some some way. And uh, so the question that I asked at the end is, you know, could I use the, the core techniques of IMAP to build a map of my own organization? Uh, and the author, you know, jo uh, Joseph, obviously, you know, he said, yeah, sure. Um, so hopefully that's something that eventually comes of this. Uh, you, know, you could somehow use uh, the, the ideas of IMAP uh, to build a spatially consistent map of your own network, your own organization, and, and to get those advantages, you know, kind of that I was talking about before. Um, that would be a super interesting area, and maybe even have it some, uh, you know, a user in the loop, right? You can uh, have things, uh, you know, pop out automatically, but maybe there's some tweaking that you want to do to optimize it for your organization's needs. That would also be really interesting. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I think the one thing that's interesting for this one, um, maybe in just broader than cyber, is that this could just be used by actually network folks to, dis- to see problems. You know, so not just cyber problems, but just, hey, there's something going on in the network because of X or you know, there's unusual activity here because of that, and in a much different way than they currently do with the tools that they currently have. And, and you know, like you were saying, if there was a way to actually create a topology based upon an org, it would make that even easier from some, just from a visual standpoint. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, in the next few years, we'll see a paper called Generalized IMAPs. Visualizing, you know, uh, we'll, we'll leave that up to the, to the authors, uh, or maybe some uh, some clever PhD students somewhere want to tackle that. Uh, one that we really like that we haven't talked about yet is Oceans, which is online collaborative explorative analysis on network security. Uh, this one has a, a, a great video that accompanies it, and actually this is the one I was talking about whenever I said the authors did a great job with their illustrations. Um, so the first author, Siming Chen, did a great job um, in this paper illustrating the, you know, it's a complex system, right? So it's, you know, got multiple views, uh, and it would be complicated just for one person to use, but he's using it for online collaborative analysis, which is interesting to me. Um, you know, you, you, you always hear about people, you know, in an organization that need to work together, and to, to build that in as a first-class feature in a tool um, sounds really interesting. Um, so one thing I would love to hear from you guys is, you know, what are the needs for uh, collaborative analysis that you have? Um, and could you see yourself using something like this, or is there some other change? Like, does it need to work between tools, or how does collaboration work? And uh, you know, especially in the context of data viz. I, I could tell you there, there would absolutely be cases where, if there was the ability for, and I'll talk specifically, let's say during an incident. If there were multiple things coming through during a particular incident where you've got maybe like someone that's a lead incident handler kind of running through everything, but you've got collaboration happening between systems people and network people, uh, maybe incident uh, incident man- incident management uh, incident handling managers, um, and maybe some other folks that are trying to provide input into their desktop folks, etc. Um, I can absolutely see where if there were if you could bring in those elements into a cohesive way for people to drag and drop things in, bring things in, zoom things over here, connect things together in a way better way right now. Because like right now, the way that happens is, okay, I'm going to go grab this log file and paste it into this thing over here, and I'm going to give you this spreadsheet from this export from this Microsoft system. And I, I mean, right now, it's this whole series of things which doesn't work very well and creates an inefficient um, tr- tr- series of events for to triage during an incident. Something like this could absolutely help. If you could bring that information together, into a point where this thing could then extrapolate that out and bring those folks together and help that be a bit more collaborative, that would absolutely help in that particular case where they're trying to actually solve a real problem in real time. And just to add to that, I, I don't think I can add to more about the collaboration because I, I don't work in an incident response or an operation center type thing. But one of the things that I noticed and that Bob and I have talked about is that a lot of the work within cybersecurity is devoted to the operational um, situational awareness type thing about uh, interpreting logs and things like that. And I know um, from some of the uh, past jobs that I've had that the proportion of people working in cybersecurity that actually do that type of work is actually relatively small. You know, roughly, uh, I don't know, Bob, what would you say, probably 5%? I, I was a security go five, organization. I was going to go five to nine percent of it. It depends on the org because some of them actually have to invest in it more, like a like a big finance org would have to do more. But that, yeah. that's that's probably what it is. Yeah. 
So I think it's kind of interesting, though, that like most of what we're seeing for, uh, in the broader sense, even all of the data science applied to security and visualization, a lot of it is very heavily focused on the operation center, on, on the situational awareness, on helping the analyst um, do their job a little better, right? Um, and yet there's like a whole other swath of, of the security organization that um, is adopting, you know, stats type work uh, intermittently. Um, so, but to get back to the, the collaboration thing, um, I guess I don't have a comment on the collaboration thing. Well, actually, I, I, I'm going to do something totally unfair um, since you went there with collaboration. Um, and if, if you've heard any of the previous podcasts, I'm, I'm the guy that goes, people don't scale. Um, and and even though I'm actually more of a viz guy than I am any any anything else, uh, I'm wondering how how does VizSec, how does what's got especially maybe what got presented this year how does how do how does people not scale or people don't scale marry up with create more viz for people because the reality is is we're not going to have enough folks to do this stuff we're not going to be able to to scale up people to do this finding of things and I know we touched on it a little bit in the beginning when you talk about machine learning and things like that. But the reality is, is like Viz is a human looking at something. So as a result of that, like how how do we deal with the people scaling problem as a result of focusing on Viz? I think you already got it. Um, so the you know as a Viz researcher, you know I'm not a data mining or machine learning researcher, even though I might use some of those tools. Um, I think keeping up with that as a Viz researcher is one of the main things we can do, and especially as a security Viz researcher. Uh, because you guys, you know, there, there are people already using data mining techniques uh, and large-scale data analysis techniques um, to answer questions in their organizations now um, and to understand what people are actually using and what's available uh, is really, really important. Um, the, you know, one of the examples I go back to again and again is, uh, you know, detecting malicious activity and detecting anomalous activity and uh, you know how there are so many principled ways um, in the data mining and machine learning community. I, I read again and again papers that are getting like 99% you know classification accuracy on detecting anomalous data, uh, and that's fine. Um, you know if you can do some sort of action based on that data, uh, that that's good. But you don't know if an anomaly is actually something. You know you don't know how to handle it. I feel like, you know, at the yeah. end of this machine learning algorithm, there has to be a human, and that has to be taken into account. Even if it means changing the machine learning algorithm, you know, there's got to be some way to get the human in the loop, um, and that's really one of the core tenets of uh, visual analytics, um, which is like a subfield of data visualization uh, that actually has its own conference now. Visual analytics, you know, that combines, you know, human in the loop algorithms, data, you know, data mining, machine learning, uh, with visualization in all sorts of different ways. Um, so that's an exciting community to follow to see how people are combining those two things. Uh, and it turns out you know, there are a lot of different ways you can do that. I also feel like um, it is possible to do applying some of this visualization stuff to too simple of a problem where you don't want to be involving an analyst looking at your tool at that particular time. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need a sophisticated visualization tool to determine that there's a, a massive denial of service going on. It's really like the gray areas when you, you can't classify something as anomalous, but you're maybe think that maybe something's going on. There needs to be someone actually looking and diving into this data. It's in those places that visualization can really help and 
actually help an analyst instead of forcing analysts to look at more things. So it's a matter, essentially, to paraphrase, it's you need that human in the loop, and, and part of the role of visualization and analytics is to, to pare down and, and make that one or, or a handful of people working in that area more effective and more efficient. Yeah, figuring out that balance is definitely something that we want to do, and uh, it, 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 it's, it's interdisciplinary work, right? I mean, you've got the people on the design side, people that are good at putting you know graphics on the screen, uh, and then you have the people that are also good at data mining, machine learning. So bringing all of us together. Not only that, we then need the security person, the person with the security chops to tell us that we're doing it the right way. Uh, so putting all that together is incredibly challenging. Uh, there are people that are doing it, um, but it still takes you know a lot of work and a lot of discourse between communities. So the more that we can do this sort of thing and get input from the community, the better. What do you guys have planned uh, for next year? Can we ask about next year? Is it too soon? after this year to ask about next year? Well, we're planning next year. Um, so we'll have more details in the coming weeks. Uh, one thing about next year, I'll be general chair next year. Um, so I'll be, I don't know, you know, doing stuff that general chairs do. <laughs> doing lots of meetings and that sort of thing. But yeah, so so next year is going to be fun. Uh, we hope to grow more. Um, we hope to have, you know, more security people involved, you know, either, you know, with the, the, the main authors, um, you know, pick out some of these guys. I'm sure they would love to hear from you if you have comments on their papers. Uh, that's definitely something that we want. I guess one of the things that I would like to see next year uh, a lot of times we talk, you just talked about that there are very few people that, you know, actually touch logs and that sort of thing. And uh, I've been wrestling with this issue. You know, we're talking about responding to incidents. You know, what if we can prevent incidents from occurring in the first place? And what's the role of visualization there? And so I kind of touched on this whenever I did the Nessus log visualization thing, but that was still a log visualization tool. How about more generally, you know, can we use visualization to, you know, help, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, what are some of the words associated with that, you know, where, you, where you're, you know, not doing incident response, but you're doing things like, you know, patching systems and uh, figuring out where vulnerabilities are and, uh, you know, compliance management, that sort of thing. Firewall, you know, we've had one uh, paper, at least one or two papers on, like, actually, you know, helping people manage firewall logs which turns out to be a really interesting problem. Um, even in the security community, it's still not solved, especially whenever you have distributed firewalls. Um, and so there has to be a human in the loop there making the you know, call, calling the shots. Uh, there has to be heterogeneous data you know, to figure out which shots to call. And uh, you know, honestly, uh, in the data-driven security book, I saw a lot of this, right? You guys are going to the Alien Vault database and getting stuff you know, into a system, analyzing it, and you're using that to, to kind of you know, harden your network. I want to see more of that, uh, and I want to know what the role of visualization is there more generally. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, like, it, it's, it's crazy talk there. I mean, I, I, there's at least 50 vendors on the RSA floor that have solved this problem, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, well, and I, I think, um, I mean, so what you just said there, and I, I, I know that both um, David Seversky and, um, and Reutemann are both probably going to listen to this, so they're, they're both probably cheering right now, um, just because that's, that's one of the problem areas that, you know, from a, one, from a practitioner standpoint, David, and then from a vendor standpoint, uh, Michael, it's near and dear to their hearts, because that's something that they're trying to do, too, and I, I think, I think you're right. I think there needs to be more focus on that prevention area and, you know, basically getting ahead of, of the actual problem. I think part of the problem there is, though, most 
I, I, so I'm making a really bad generalization here, but I think I could back it up over time. Mo most practitioners have now seeded the network, or they and they or they've seeded their devices. Basically, you know, the bad guys are going to get in, so it's not about stopping; it's about it's about responding. And and I still believe that we can stop, um, just just in some way, shape, or form. And, and I think maybe you're right. I think combining the the data sources problem and combining it with with effective visualization and whatever whatever that solution means because it's not there right now um, is definitely an area where if there was more work put into that I think we could actually start to take back some ground that we've already ceded to the to the bad guys yeah, isn't it true that just because they're in it doesn't mean that you know they have to be able to move laterally with you know complete ease Right, and I think some of these tools can help there too, or at least this general idea. Oh, someone has read the kill chain paper. Okay, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's uh, and and so j just because that the, just because the initial event was successful, does not mean that all the other events have to be successful. And depending on on how far you're watching, um, so how effective you're watching at each individual area improves your ability to stop in those particular areas, um, or force the or force other movements um, on, on on the adversary in those particular areas. I, I still say though, like from just when we're talking about patching, if there was a way to effectively manage the environment that you have, with yeah, I, I'll use the term prioritized patching just to be a little more general and not take up a whole lot of time. Uh, there's there is the potential to actually not have something not be an issue to come in, or if you could use some of the analytics and visualization um, cap capabilities that, that people might have with even their desktop stuff like Excel even to bring together some data sources together to go show management, hey, if we were to do this, like maybe implement two-factor, uh, we'd be able to stop X because we've noticed this data from other places, et cetera. So I, I, I'm, still, I'm, I'm still suggesting we could stop it before it even starts, but you're right. Applying the analysis and visualization at every step of the kill chain would also be a really effective tool at, at, at stopping things faster than they currently are now. And you just gave you know the community another idea. You're talking about things like risk and you know prioritizing and how we could integrate different data sources in, in order to achieve that goal. That would be perfect. I would love to see that sort of work you know come through VizSec in the next few years. That would be awesome. And just to add to that, one of the exciting things I think is if we look at the history of where security has been and how we got here, a lot of it is just driven by intuition. You know, if you talk about all the firewalls, all the patching, all the vulnerabilities that, that are out there and how they're addressed, a lot of that is driven by intuition. It is people sitting around a table going, I think this is important, right? That's how almost all of it has been driven. If you start to introduce analytics and visualization and data science, bringing that stuff in there, there is just so many opportunities now to improve the state of affairs. And I hope that through things like BizSec and some of the other efforts like that, that we can start to talk about things like that. How do we start to apply, you know, a lot of the things that academia has been talking about for years, how do we apply that now into what has largely been driven by intuition? So I, I'm pretty excited about that. That would also be great. And, and apart from, apart from the, um, the the conference, is there so like you know there's there's this there's the security metrics group, and there's the Society of Information Risk Analysts, and there's you know a couple of the handfuls of mailing lists out there. Is there is there like a mailing list or community that people could join online to interact with folks that are doing this type of stuff and just kind of you know like share ideas and and share cool stuff they're working on and things like that. I think we're still working on our social media presence. Uh, we, we're on Twitter, um, so we have the VizSec uh, username on Twitter. 
uh, our website actually lists all of our previous uh, years and links to like you know the, the digital library pages um, where those are. Uh, so that's a good way to to find you know authors and interesting papers. I think the best way to find papers, um, one of our uh, organizing committee members, Fabian Fisher, uh, put together a site that actually lists all the papers, abstracts, you can search by keyword. Um, so you can have, I think we have about 137 papers as of last year, and you can just search them through this awesome web interface that Fabian put together. Um, so we're definitely going to link to that. Uh, I use it all the time, and I'm always directing people who are new to VizSec to this site. That's the best way to, like, you know, if you're interested in BGP, you search for the papers that talk about BGP, and boom, you're there. Uh, so that's a really awesome tool. I wish more academic communities were actually doing this sort of thing. It's awesome. Um, so the, the best way to reach us now is, um, you know, visec.org, twitter.com slash visec. Uh, Sophie, do you know if we have an email list that we've been using? We do, and it's, it's listed on the website as well. Gotcha. Right. So those are the best ways to get us. Um, we're open to hearing from anyone if you know they have ideas, you know, for what they would like to see at future VizSex. Um, we're throwing around the idea of having uh, a, a, you know, kind of a practitioner-oriented VizSec, uh, where instead of papers, uh, we would invite people to give talks, uh, kind of, you know, something that you usually see in the practitioner world. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, please reach out to us. Um, you know, if you have sponsorships available for that sort of thing. Uh, definitely reach out to us so we can make this thing happen. You know, if we have the funding to make it happen, uh, we'll come up with the time. I'm only like, and so you guys can see me like laughing and stuff that the people out there can't. But I'm only laughing because like you just opened your, you just opened yourself up for a hundred papers with with snapshots of Splunk and Kibana dashboards. But that. <laughs> That's okay. No, 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 no. It is not. No. We learn a lot from the, <laughs> at least in volume. Actually, and before we, guys, we are really pushing time here, but, um, and I, I just feel the need to ask just because I'm, I'm a goofball, but, like, how many pie charts were in the submissions that you guys rejected? There, there had to be one. There just had to be. I, like, at least, there's got to be, like, because, like, my, my, my faith in humanity would be restored if there wasn't, but there's got to be one. I'm thinking there was at least one in, you know, some of the papers that I saw, but you, you never know. You know, that could have been for a different conference. Who knows? We've learned our lessons. We, you know, a lot of people from the Viz community submit, so we know we know what we're doing there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Good. Well, thank you both for joining us on this uh, episode number 13, Lucky 13. Well, it technically it's like so. Technically, it is for the the fourteenth episode, so it's really not that bad. Oh, okay. All right. I so I, I think by doing that we dodged a bullet. That's all right. Yeah. So Lane, Sophie, thank you both for joining us. What a great conversation, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on maybe before VizSec next year, and we can talk about what's going on with VizSec next year. Heck with that live reporting from VizSec next year. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we'll just stream the whole thing. That's not. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.